With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 540 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Uh, just Adam today, and uh, I have a really, really delightful and important conversation for you on this episode uh, with author Joan F. Smith. Joan has a new book that um, just came out, or rather is just about to come out, depending on when you listen to this. If you listen to it on Monday, it comes out on Tuesday, April 20th, so... Uh, it's a must read, but uh, the book is called The Half Orphan's Handbook, and it's a coming of age story for sure, but it deals with um, the main character's father committed suicide. So obvious trigger warnings for, uh, for suicide and grief, um, but this is something that um, unfortunately uh, Joan had to go through when she was younger, and um, it's uh, the book itself though is is funny and heartbreaking, but also heart mending. I just loved it so freaking much, and um, it's very authentic when it comes to the exploration of grief and you know kind of how we all deal with trauma in in different ways, and and one of those ways might be humor sometimes, and a mix of humor and, and tragedy and, and grief and just, oof, it's such a wonderful, wonderful book. And this conversation was delightful. It was, it was very kind of cathartic. Um, uh, talked about a lot about grief of not only the pandemic, but um, some stuff that we have both have gone through in our lives. Um, yeah, it was just a really very joyous conversation. Um, and I feel very delighted to now, no, Joan. So I am very lucky there. But uh, the Half Orphans Handbook is an absolute must read. Uh, if you would like to get a hold of us, you can always email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at probooknerds, or just go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. And that's where you can find all of our old episodes and you can search for specific genres. Uh, or authors or books and find all the episodes where we've talked about those or with those particular authors. Uh, if you haven't yet, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, that helps people find us a little bit more easily. Um, and I think that's about everything. If you want some professional book nerd swag, you can go to shop.overdrive.com. We also have some lovely Libby hoodies there and tote bags and all sorts of good stuff. So I think that's everything. Uh, I don't want to keep you guys any longer. I just want you to be able to enjoy this conversation with Joan F. Smith on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Fabulous. All right. Well, I will do an intro like after the fact by my like in myself and stuff. But what we always kind of have our authors do is 
kick us off by introducing their book. So would Mm -hmm. you like to introduce our listeners to the Half Orphans Handbook? And that way I don't give away too much of your plot. Sure thing. Um, So the book is about 16-year-old Lila Cunningham, and she unexpectedly loses her dad to suicide. Um, She creates a series of rules to help prevent herself from feeling that kind of pain again. And um, this gets pretty complicated when she goes to a main grief camp where she meets a bunch of new people and falls in love with somebody who might not be who he says he is. So it's this coming of age story where she's trying to figure out why her dad did what he did in order to heal. So for people who may not be familiar with your life, what made you want to write about this particular topic? Absolutely. So I lost my dad to suicide. And um, unfortunately, I was a teenager during the first attempt that I knew about. And I was a teenager for the second attempt that I knew about too. And then um, a couple of years after that, he did die by suicide. Um, And it was very unexpected. The first attempt, it was Mm -hmm. like everybody who found out about him when he finally did pass was shocked um, because that was not his like outward presentation. He was mm-hmm. very happy-go-lucky and he was like the dad that all the friends would call if there was a rough spot in the middle of the night and mm-hmm. needed a ride. Like that was the guy who would take you home. Yeah. Um, and so I carried the, uh, the character of Lila around with me for a long time because I knew I wanted to write about her, um, mm-hmm. but I just didn't know where to put her yet. Um, yeah. And then once I once the grief camp kind of came to light, I was like, okay, that's where she's going. Was that something, the, the grief camp thing, because I, um, I have, like I have a story that's, that I'll get to in a little bit later. That's yeah not entirely similar, but also unfortunately tragic. And like, I remember, um, basically when I was 10 years old, my best friend and I saw his father have a stroke and he ended up passing away. And, um, we were like in the room, it was just the three of us in there. And so it was obviously very traumatic and, they sent us to, um, to counseling, obviously, because, you know, our parents aren't, aren't monsters. Um, <laughs> and, um, but like, I remember very little of it, but it was more of like a, a one-on-one and then like really small group stuff. But like, was the, the grief camp, was that something that you just kind of came up with? Or was that something that, that you experienced after you went through everything you did with your father? So the grief camp that I wrote is the place I wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it either didn't exist then or we didn't have that kind of resource to get there. Um, Mm -hmm. There's like some socioeconomic stuff in the book too, where Lila's feeling like she can't afford to be there, um, which was very much my family as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically when I was in my, I think late twenties, I had the idea for this character and I just didn't know where to put her. And then I had a fever and I didn't know it yet. And I was on Mm -hmm. a plane and I was going to the AWP conference out in LA. Mm-hmm. And um, I read an article about the closure of a camp from 9-11. Mm-hmm. So all the kids who lost parents were invited to this camp every year. And like they could be with people who understood the kinds of things that they went through. But then all those kids grew up. So they had no need for the camp anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like this random camp. And this one was in the Berkshires. Um it's gone. Like why there's now this space, what to do with that. And I was like, Oh, I could put her there. Yeah. I, two things. One, I, I, in your bio, you mentioned, um, 
just speaking of being on a plane like you mentioned doing your best writing on a plane and like I felt that on a visceral level it's like one of the things I honestly miss most about traveling because in my normal life I travel like once a month for work and I same thing like I'm an aspiring author like I feel like I write more on planes than anywhere else so I I feel you on a cellular level there (laughs) um but also something there's this concept that I can't stop thinking about um we've had some family unfortunate situations over in the pandemic and there's just like this concept that I, I always think about when someone passes away or even just like when you have a huge momentous occasion where like there's this concept of you're just kind of supposed to move on eventually mm-hmm. and like and it's um like it's fucking heartbreaking honestly <laughs> yeah. like you know it's like there there is and you you talk about it a little bit at the beginning of the book where like their, their family is like yeah people brought us casseroles and they would check in on us but then like eventually your friends feel awkward and they just stop texting you to hang out and it's just like I don't know, I'm just really glad that your book addresses this because again, this isn't even like a question I kind of told you before we started recording. Like this is going to be like more of a conversation than like a bunch yeah. of questions, but like it's so like heartbreaking that you are just expected to be like, all right, Joan, yeah, your dad died, but move on. And it's just like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's something that yeah. needs to be talked about. Absolutely. I mean, I remember like the casseroles are real, (laughs) like that stuff comes in. Mm -hmm. People brought cookies, people brought so much stuff and like blankets and all these things. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't living at home anymore. Um, I just moved out and then I returned home. And I remember the first thing I ate after my dad died was a salted biscotti, which I'd never had before. And that Mm -hmm. flavor is just like embedded in my brain. And then like the next day it was freezing and people commented on the weather and then like somebody laughed and I was like, what? Like people can still laugh. Yeah. But like life just does go on. And I also unfortunately lost one of my best friends in my early twenties. He died Mm -hmm. in a car accident. And like the next day it was like a beach day practically. Like Mm -hmm. it's unbelievable, but it does go on. Yeah. I, I kept thinking about the food thing just because like I said, um, my best friend, his name's Kurt. Uh, we were still really, really close. Like our families are in the sense like his family grew up in the house that my mom's dad built. Like we literally lived around. Like, it was just like this weird thing where like they have four, four kids and it's two girls, two boys. We have four kids, two girls, two boys. And like our age, he was born 25 days before me. Like it's just weird connections. So we we're still really close. But like I specifically remember him too. Like he went into shock basically since like, I didn't, he didn't cry during his dad's mm-hmm. funeral during the wake, anything like that. And I remember like sitting there, we were 10 years old. And I remember him like looking in their basement, like everyone was, you know, doing the like post funeral, like, like kind of awake, kind of like a somber, like yep. let's have drinks to celebrate Tom. And I remember him looking at me at 10 and being like, there's so many damn sandwiches down here. <laughs> and it was like the first time I heard him laugh. Cause he's like, what do they think we're going to do with all of this shit? And yeah. I don't know. It's just like, it's such a weird concept it is because it's just like, well, we've done our part. And, and I'm not even thinking that I like expect people who know someone who's gone through a tragedy, like to know what to do, which is why I've, I love your book so much because it's like, it's not their fault that they don't know how to keep helping you. No. And that's why too, I wrote a lot of what I think at least is funny, like humor in the book, because like those moments, like your friend laughing about the sandwiches, like Mm -hmm. that's part of what I think being human is like the, the weirdest thing that ever could have possibly happened was 
obviously my dad's death was a major tragedy and it was mm-hmm. so life altering. And the morning after he died, my mom woke up to an email from her boss that said that she was dead. So her entire school system, she was a teacher, got an email that my mother had died because they got the information wrong. Oh my God. And that was like the hardest you could ever laugh. Yeah. Like it was so bizarre, but mm-hmm. it's those moments you have to find it. Mm-hmm. Um somewhat along those same lines back in, um, December, I, I grew up and I had, a an uncle who kind of lived with us every other weekend because he was divorced, but he had a daughter, he lived in Michigan and we lived in, um, just outside of Cleveland and he would come. So like literally my entire childhood, he would come in every other weekend. He would live with us with his, with my cousin, Caitlin. And so we were really, really close and he was sick a lot of his life. But, um, at the end of last year, he got really, really sick, had to go to a hospital. They had to amputate his leg and like it went horribly in the, and he ended up passing away just from mm-hmm. complications. And it was something where like, obviously it's the middle of a pandemic and like we just decided to have a funeral and like everyone was as safe as they could be. Um, like my brother and I did the eulogy and like, it was very emotional. And then like, it's our family. One of our family's traditions is to do, you know, some kind of shot for like, Christmas, whatever, like for some reason, my grandpa drank peach schnapps as like one of the (laughs) many things he drank. I don't know why he couldn't have chosen a better alcohol. Um, But like we finished the funeral and like I had brought peach schnapps for, I have a huge family. So there was like 30 cousins there and we all did a shot. And my cousin, Caitlin, whose dad had just passed away, was like sobbing and we're, but we're we're standing in a freezing cold parking lot because we can't go anywhere because it's the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And she just looks at us all and she's like, we do a shot. We, you know, cheers Uncle Milan. And then she just looks at us all. She's like, now what the hell do we do? And like, everyone just started laughing. Mm-hmm. It is, like, it's just like, I don't know. I, the comedy that you put in this book is, I think it's essential. Cause like, how else are you supposed to freaking deal with everything? I, yeah. It's yeah. a lot. It's yeah. all those moments though, that make it memorable, I think too. Mm-hmm. And, and help you start to grieve. Yeah. Um, have you had, I mean, I know your book is, is coming out this year, but you were clearly like working on edits, I imagine things like during the, the pandemic and stuff like, have you found dealing with the pandemic? Was it all kind of similar to how you felt when you you know, found out everything about your dad? Not dissimilar. I think that there are definitely some um, moments in there that like you're panicky, right? Like, especially mm-hmm. at the beginning when you're wiping down groceries and mail and you're like, this is my life now. And plus, you know, we, I have two little kids. So having them home all the time, all of a sudden, like we, my husband owns a company, I work a full-time job and it was like a lot at once. Mm -hmm. And then like no more time for me. And also I feel like the whole world kind of had their anxiety turned up on high. So Mm -hmm. mental health has been, you know, spotlighted a little bit more than it was pre pandemic maybe. Um, there are definitely some similarities to grieving what my life was. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, also the uncertainty of the future, because I think that as things start to return back to normal, there will be some changes and that is not dissimilar to that experience for sure. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I don't know, I'm almost getting this feeling, um, our, our office is getting ready in June. We're going to do like a sort of back in the office, sort of not, and they're going to be very smart about it, but it's like, as much as I want life to return to normal. And I, and I think I've felt this after like tragedies and things in my life too. Like as much as I want life to return to normal, I almost feel safe in this kind of like cocoon that I'm mm-hmm. in. I'm like, 
doing this every single day and like staying home and not going and seeing my friends or family even like talk on FaceTime and everything. But like, I don't know. I feel like I keep, that feels so much like dealing with like a death in the family or like a tragedy just because it's like, I don't know that I want to move on from this sadness. Yeah, it does. And I think in some ways, like reemergence is actually going to be more difficult than Mm -hmm. the initial like lockdown or lock in kind of Mm -hmm. for sure. Do you remember like, you know, you talked about laughing because of the absurd email that your mom got. (laughs) Um, Do you remember like if that there were like specific times that it did start to feel, I don't want to say normal that your dad was gone because obviously like you can't replace Mm -hmm. a parent but like do you remember ever feeling a sense of normalcy and like how you were able to get there I'm just thinking of like people who may go through the things that you've gone through and may hear this and may read your book like almost like fence posts or like benchmarks and for them to know like okay maybe I am getting a little bit okay I know everyone's different but like were there things for you that you're like oh okay maybe I can do this so many things yeah I mean so right, I was uh, just about to start writing my MFA thesis um, mm-hmm. when my dad died, like literally the same week. And then I had to complete the thesis. And that was like an exercise in like a mind control, practically, like being able to sit down and write a story and like parts of that story. I never really finished it, to be honest with you, but parts of it were really inspired by his family too, which was difficult. So I felt like I was like really mired into like his kind of universe. Um, a friend of mine just lost her brother this year. And I talked to her a lot about how the first year is really difficult because like the first birthday or like our Christmas that year, he died like three weeks before. So we had no tree, Mm -hmm. like our presents were on like a table. It was just like a really sad, sad thing. And then at some point you do try to reclaim it. So like I watched a funny movie. I went out to dinner and like, I tried to kind of peel the bandaid off bit by bit. And like, when I would try something, it would work or it wouldn't. And then I had therapy, which was fantastic. And bit by bit, I mean, I really think that time is such a bomb. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I struggle with, I am terrible at giving myself grace for anything, Mm -hmm. like at all. Um, and I even like knowing that about myself is almost kind of funny because I'm like, you're terrible giving yourself grace. You can you can accept that part, but you can't like do it where like I'll start feeling shitty that I am not able to kind of like turn a corner. Like I'll feel guilty that I feel bad, you know, and, like I mm-hmm. do the whole like look at everything I have. What's your problem type of a thing? And it's almost like that a spiral. Yep. Um, I imagine, though, it, that's probably not. I hope you could give yourself some grace after everything you went through. Like, again, like I struggle because I'm like, oh, I kind of miss my family. And then like, that's a perfectly good reason to be sad. But I, yeah, everybody has it. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody has it in yeah. like, I have to say, okay, Joan, like give yourself grace. And I kind of laugh at that because I'm not good at it either. But <laughs> like, at least if I say it, then my I'm attempting. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like parenting is an exercise in absolute guilt futility, because yeah. if I take the time for me to like do my things, we call it filling the cup at home because my kids get furious when I'm like doing something without them. Yeah. But I'm like, listen, like mommy is a writer and I need time to fill my cup. So I'm going to go do this and then I'm going to sit there and do it and feel guilty for not being with them. But mm-hmm. then like, if I'm with them, I'm guilty for not writing. Like it's, 
everything, you know, I think it's just like you level up to a new area and then you're still the same person. Are we, were we separated at birth? Like, I I feel like I'm talking to myself (laughs) right now. I um, think so. No one can see this. We're literally wearing the same like color pink on this on this conversation, which is it's very, pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um, there you have this quote in the book that I love because it's so true about grief. And I and I think it'll really help people understand that they don't need to feel guilty. It's um, I think it's like halfway through and they're talk and it's like really the first time. Is it Leela? Uh, it's Lila. Lila. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was, see, this is my, my brain. Um, <laughs> Lila is talking to some friends that she meets at this camp. And she, it's like kind of the first time that she says like, how do you guys deal with this? And somebody says something like, it might be no, it might be one of her girlfriends, something along the lines of like, it's like climbing up a mountain mm-hmm. and, you know, sometimes you're going up, maybe you'll find like a tunnel but it doesn't matter like what gear you have or what route you have. Maybe there's another mountain after like you're still climbing a fucking mountain. Yeah. And like, I like put the book down and I was like, Joan sees into my soul. And I just, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, again, not a question, but it's just like, I don't think people understand that whether they're going through something or they've never had to go through something tragic. Like it's okay not to be okay. Kind of a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And that passage actually is almost completely unchanged, I think, from where I first wrote it. And I remember Mm -hmm. writing that moment. That's um, I think that's Winnie who says it. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's like no matter what, like we're all going through this game of life and like sometimes we're going to win, sometimes we're going to lose. And no matter what, like we're still doing it, basically. And I'm obsessed with the things that like, I don't know what comes after life. And that is basically why I'm a writer, I think, because mm-hmm. there's unanswered questions in the world. So yeah, I think about that stuff all the time. I, same. I remember like after, um, after my friend's dad passed away, like two years later, my grandfather passed away and it like, definitely wasn't, a tra- he was a grandfather. He was a little bit older. He was sick. It wasn't like a tragedy, but I remember being like 13 years old and sitting in my bed not being able to fall asleep because I would go through like super healthy thing for a 13 year old like I would go through like okay well um do we have a carbon monoxide that was the time when like carbon monoxide was a huge like terror that everyone mm-hmm. was apparently afraid of I was like well uh, do we have a carbon monoxide thing like what if our house catches on fire like what if I get cancer in the middle of the night like because I don't know like that I'm so jealous of people who can just like embrace life for and I'm not like and they're never worried I can't even begin yeah. to relate more to you right now. Like, yeah. are my burners off? Are the doors locked? <laughs> like, uh, yep. It's all I think about. That like, so. that like OCD where I'm like 13 years old going down, checking our locks as if my yep. parents haven't done the same thing. Yep. Um, to take a complete left turn. I, you are, a, you have a really cool job. You're a writer in residence at a library. Yeah. What does that entail? Because I want it. Um, I'm, it was a bucket list item for me and I Uh cannot begin to tell you how excited I am about it. So it's um, my local town library. They started it this year in honor of a board member named um, Herb Voigt. And Mm. basically what it is, is um, I am the writer in residence. So I'm going to answer questions that patrons might have. Um, I am going to put on a couple of workshops that are writing related mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, I am going to finish at least one project. And my goal is actually to finish two um, that my agent can then kick into the stratosphere Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, make some book 
recommendations. Yeah. So that's the, that's the goal. Yeah. Um, do you know, do, do you know, do you know what, um, like what kind of, uh, like kind of like seminars and type things you're going to like set up for people? Like, is it, I'm almost envisioning like a creative writing class type of a thing. Like, do you know what you're going to put together for resident or for, uh, for patrons rather? I think so. Yeah. There, I started kicking around a couple of different ideas. One of them, I'm very into um, setting in place and like sensory details and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then coming out of the pandemic, as we all have, like, I'm probably going to kind of wrap that in for um, a class for adults. And then I think we're going to do one for teens about like dialogue and what they actually want to read instead of what all the grownups in the world think that they want to read. So (laughs) you're not just going to suggest Catcher in the Rye. No, I am not. Nope. It's crazy. Like if you give a a child the book that's actually, you know, interesting and modern, they, they actually do like reading. It's, you know, as opposed to forcing them. Yeah, it's revolutionary. You know, I think that there are new classics and mm-hmm. those are great. Yeah, I actually, I, I grew up, my mom was, um, was a teacher for 40 years. And so like, and she, she taught third and fourth grade, but we were a very literary house, but like, and I grew up reading, but I remember like the first time we, I read a book in school that I didn't actively hate it was Princess Bride when I was, mm-hmm. I think a sophomore in high school. I remember actively like telling the teacher like, Hey, we should read more books that aren't trash. Like, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, Was writing this book cathartic for you? Or do you think that you're far enough removed from everything that's happened where it was more so just getting a story down on the page? No, it was so enormously cathartic for me. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, This is actually, it's the first book I ever finished. So Mm -hmm. I kept, it took me, you know, I think five months to draft the first draft, but then actually like the first draft, I mean, it's unrecognizable from then and going through the revision because I had to keep like examining the exact same passages over and over again. And then I'd like try to make it a little bit more authentic based on how I felt or based on how I completely didn't feel. Going through that and through that and through that absolutely was a form of catharsis. Yeah. Uh, were, were there parts that felt more challenging than others to write, whether it's specific voices or specific scenes or things that like, was there stuff that you found yourself struggling? I'm just, I, I, as I told you before we started recording, I was like a puddle reading it the whole time. So I imagine <laughs> you were probably the same writing it, but like, were there parts that were more challenging for you? The parts that were a little tough were um, finessing. There's like a little bit of a subplot with like girl drama kind of. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want it to be like girl hate, like that kind of thing. So making sure that it didn't come off that way was really important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some parts that were difficult were um, there's like a kind of like a twist, I guess I'll say. But that scene that happens toward the end, Mm -hmm. I had to revisit a lot too. Yeah. Um, did you write this kind of the initial draft anywhere, like linearly, like from start to finish? Nope. No. <laughs> did you kind of always know how you wanted it to reach a conclusion though? Or was it just like, I'm going to start and we'll just see where this goes. So I am a big time outliner now. Yeah. Um, that book, my process has kind of always been the same, but what I do is I write everything that I know is going to happen, mm-hmm. like the key scenes, the pivotal scenes, the scenes I'm excited to write. And then I go back and I reverse outline. Yeah. So I, somewhere I have a picture of like a index covered bulletin board of this book and like the scenes that are already written are pink. And then the ones that I need to write are yellow. Mm-hmm. So once I get through everything that I'm like excited to do, I start from the top and write linearly to get all yeah. the way through the story. That is extremely smart. I um, 
the draft of the book I'm working on. Like I ha- I have it in um in a Google Doc, which is probably not the best way to do it, but um in like a I don't know, fit of creativity or something. Like like I thought of like the last like 30 pages and just wrote all those out. And so now I'm like trying to get to that. Yeah, totally. But like anytime I open up the Google Doc, I have to scroll all the way down and I just have like in the bold letters and like the ending. And I'm like, God damn it. I just gotta I wanna <laughs> get them like I almost wish I hadn't written that because I'm just like it reminds me that I'm like, oh, I have so far to go before I get to there. So I know that part's yeah. hard. Mm-hmm. Uh so towards the uh, end of our episodes, we like to ask nine questions. We call the nerd nine. Um, okay. I like alliteration. So uh, the first one is, what is the last book you finished reading? So I just finished The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, um, which was so good. And now I'm knee deep in um, Angeline Bully's um, The Fire Firekeeper's Daughter? Firekeeper's Daughter, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. We are seriously sympathetic. So um, Angeline and uh, the narrator were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And so oh, delightful. I saw that. I didn't listen yet because yeah. I was afraid that there would be a spoiler. But. Um, no, we can't. We stay kind of. I almost felt like they had not. They were such sweethearts. They, um, because of the voice of the, the character and like the fact that it's um, a kind of a Native American setting, mm-hmm. uh, Angeline was very involved in the selection of the narrator. And, mm-hmm. but they had never actually like met in person. So I felt like I was actually just kind of like, intruding on a new a budding friendship it was it's actually yeah it's delightful um but yeah uh, Addie LaRue is oof oh so good so, so yeah. creative yeah yeah uh do you have a favorite place to read I I don't I read every day kind of all over the place mm-hmm. so I I hop around let's yeah. say bed though because I have to read every night before I go to bed that's fair uh do you remember the book that kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid mm-hmm. um A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith um it's, I read it like way too young. Um, Mm -hmm. but, and there were all these words and actually like, if I find my first copy, I underlined all the words I didn't know. Yeah. Um, which were thankfully I didn't know them, some of them, but, um, yeah, definitely that book, like the concept of this girl living in New York city, Brooklyn, like Mm -hmm. a hundred years ago, just like I fell in love with that world. Yeah. I feel like every author I've ever talked to has mentioned a book that they literally will say, like, I definitely read that too young. Like, I feel like that's like (laughs) an author rite of passage to read, like, something way heavier than you probably should have when you were My college essay was about that book, too, actually, now that I think of it. So, yeah. Um, When we're allowed to travel again, what is one place you'd like to go to that you have not yet been to? Oh, such a good one. Um, I would really, really like to go to London. Mm-hmm. Um, I technically was there, I guess, on a layover. Um, but uh, no, you're good. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't count. count. Yeah, I want to go to London. Yeah. Do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Not for like the cultural terribleness of it, right. but um, I in high school, my mom and dad hosted all my best friends uh, mm-hmm. Thanksgiving morning for breakfast, and we've done it every single year since. So. Thanksgiving morning, all of my old best friends come over for breakfast and now all their kids and their partners or what have you come over too. It's amazing. See, hosting breakfast, my sister does this. My oldest sister does this too. It's such a flex because her and her husband will have everyone over for breakfast or like brunch, usually after like we're one of those annoying families who does like five mile and 10 mile races and everything every holiday. Fantastic. Yep. They'll, they'll, but then what my, this is such a flex because they will like, they'll do brunch. And then my mom or my other sister will do Thanksgiving dinners. 
Mm-hmm. But my oldest sister, Heather, is just like, yeah, well, we got to clean up and stuff. So like by like three in the afternoon, they're just day drinking and watching football and just like living the life. And I'm like, man, the fact that you got to just choose that as your the thing they host. What a flex. Relatable. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. Are you a coffee person or a tea person? I am a coffee person and a tea person, actually. But I drink black coffee. That's it. Pretty much. Uh, cats or dogs? I'll pick dogs. I'll pick dogs. Favorite favorite food? Um, I'm very into frittatas lately, which is the most bizarre answer, but I needed to eat more spinach in my diet. So I've been eating a ton of feta frittatas, um, but I mean, definitely pizza, mm-hmm. homemade pizza on the grill. Yeah. Uh, and then if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? I'd pick my dad for sure. Yeah. I- yeah. I've rarely been more certain of an answer from someone <laughs> when asking that question. Um, okay, last question for you. What do you hope that readers take away from the Half Orphans Handbook? I hope that readers take away that there is a way to change how you feel and how you think. Um, and a lot of that can be done with therapy, but it can also be done like, you know, with self-help books or whatever it might be. I think that it's really important for us to destigmatize mental health because mm-hmm. that's just one extra barrier in the way to getting what you need. Um, and I really hope that readers can see that healing is possible and that hope is possible too. Well, your book like tore me apart, went back together like 17 different times. And I know everyone who picks it up is going to just absolutely adore it. Joan, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Adam. This has been awesome. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.